Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Justin Hess of Pymetrics. Justin, how are you doing? Hi, Al. I'm doing well, at least as, as good as anyone else can be in this current environment, right? How about you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you are, full disclosure, you're there in Manhattan. It is April 7th. Yes. And so, yes. you know, first off, you know, how are you doing? You know, I, I'm starting to feel a little stir crazy, but I feel like that's almost anyone here. You know, full disclosure for anyone out there listening, I am on the islands. I'm in Manhattan. I can look down past the island and just see almost like a movie. No one out there. Definitely surreal, but at the same time, also very heartening. I was sharing a story with one of my colleagues earlier that every night at 7 p.m., it kind of happened virally on social media. People start to clap for the healthcare workers to kind of acknowledge them in the city to give thanks and appreciation for the first couple of nights you maybe hear like a lone clap or two but slowly steadily over the past week it's really growing and there are people blowing whistles now there's people honking horns even banging pots and it especially rings true because for me and this is where it really hits home is the navy ship that has been sent to kind of alleviate some of the burden from the hospitals mm-hmm. is docked at one of the piers right next to where I live. So I can actually look down and see the ship. And I hope that all of the kind of encouragement and camaraderie that people are showing is reaching them. And so while it's both surreal that it's kind of quiet outside, it's also really heartening to know that people are still human in all of this going on right now. Needless to say, but I'll say it, yeah, I'm rooting for you personally and your fellow New Yorkers. I mean, I'm out here in Santa Cruz, California, and we've been very fortunate to be not totally clear of it by any stretch of the imagination, but it hasn't hit hard here. Knock on wood, we went social distancing early on. But needless to say, again, we're seeing the news in New York every day. So heart goes out to all of you. And I'm glad you all are coming together as a community like you are. So, you know, all the best in getting through this. And, you know, that's actually a bit of a segue into one of the themes that we're going to talk about here today. When we talk about people analytics, future of work, you've been with Pymetrics for quite a while now, and you've also been servicing the healthcare industry for quite a while. So before we get into those examples, can you just share a little bit about your background and how you got into this field of people analytics? Of course. So I am an industrial organizational psychologist by trade. I have my PhD in IO psychology. I know that's a mouthful. So kind of how I conceptualize it for people is I'm a huge nerd. I love data (laughs) and I love using that data to really help improve people's lives in the workforce. So whether it be talent acquisition or talent management, you know, really helping people find the right job for them, the right fit, but then also developing and growing them in a way that's right for both them and the organizations they're with, that's kind of been my passion. And I started in healthcare, not necessarily in a hospital or hospital system, but at a little e-learning company that was later acquired and grew into kind of an assessment business. And they were in healthcare for the entire eight years I've been there. So I've been in and out of hospitals, talking with clients. I've been into nursing homes. I've really seen the entire spectrum from acute care to post-acute care to IDD, so on and so forth. And that really helped me transition to Pymetrics, where I am a senior IO psychologist there. And I work with clients to help them best utilize our solutions and really offer kind of a consultative approach, best practices approach toward the talent acquisition and talent management product suites or ecosystem, if you will. 
Yeah, I imagine you got into IO psychology because analyzing human behavior was so easy. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know about easy. <laughs> I'm so predictable. No, no I, I think there is a descriptor that people use for IO psychologist, scientist, practitioner. And mm -hmm. I think it's 100% accurate. It is truly both art and science. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's, that's where it is for me. It's the marriage between the two. I love science. I love looking at data. I love looking at numbers, metrics, so on and so forth. But if I can't action upon it, if I can't present it in a meaningful way to really help people enact change with it, then I, I kind of feel like I'm stopping short. So that's yeah. honestly why I got into the field. Well, I, I'm glad you did because it is not only a, a noble pursuit, it is a much needed profession, particularly at this time, because people are obviously having emotional responses to what's happening. There's thoughts and anxieties, and leaders now have to make conscious crafted decisions on how to proceed. And if they're not doing that with insight that's derived from the workforce, then they're going to be, correct me if I'm wrong, guessing. So is that yeah, what you're involved in in large part right now is helping harness insights and telling stories so leaders can make more informed decisions? Absolutely. It really covers the entire spectrum of TA and TM, if you don't mind me using those acronyms. Oh, please, go. And I, I think really what every company or organization is faced with right now, especially healthcare, is three major questions. What do you do about your existing talent? How do you leverage them to their maximum potential so mm -hmm. that not only are they not burning out, but you're making sure emotionally they're, they're safe, they're secure, and productivity isn't dropping? The second question is really around how do you then continue to secure talent that you need to succeed in this honestly crazy environment, you know, very atypical. It's, it's very much an environment right now where we don't know how to handle this in the modern day. A lot of positions, a lot of companies that have always said you know, our employees can be virtual are now forced to be virtual if they want to continue business, if they want to survive. So they're coping with that, all of the logistics around that, but then also the very human aspect of it as well. Mm -hmm. And then finally, and honestly to me, one of the more important questions is how do you future-proof yourself? So yes. we're thinking about right now, and that's great, you know, we need to be reactive. We need to figure out exactly how to continue forward in the short term. But what about the long term? What is it going to look like when all of this is over? Can we even imagine now all the things that we said weren't possible, we found out are possible. So how do we go back to the normal? What is the normal now? Yep. And so I'm hearing that to do that, you need to scenario plan, you need to go through some you know, ways that might evolve and put probabilities next to them. But ultimately, you're going to have to have data and insight that's going to inform those scenarios. So moving forward, you know, again, we're here in April of 2020. You know, what do you see happening or what would you advocate leaders inside HR and outside of HR do to do this future proofing in particular? You know, what data and insight will they need? that they don't have currently? Absolutely, that's an excellent question. So I think two major things there. First, they need to understand their human capital. And human capital, just as a very high-level concept, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with it, especially if they're in the HR or talent acquisition space. It's really the knowledge, skills, abilities, and characteristics of your, of your workforce, both mm -hmm. the existing and the potential. So they need to understand what makes their workforce unique. Why, why that organization, why that company, what makes their people so special compared to, say, another organization, even if it's in the same sector or the same industry? Mm 
The second is they need to really understand then how do they begin bringing people into that mold, either one, to kind of help bolster that, uh, to fit in real well, or to disrupt it. So increasing their diversity and really understanding, especially when you think about neurodiversity, for example, different mm -hmm. thoughts, different opinions, different backgrounds, really bringing in people who can shake up the current mold and bring value to their organization where they may not have seen otherwise. You know, with that in mind, do you believe with the companies that you work with, do they have a good understanding, two things, what they have currently in that regard and what they need moving forward? Oh, that's a good question. So I think people thought they understood or knew what they had. But now that we're in this current environment, they're finding out that our tried and true practices, what we've always relied on, things like resume reviews, face-to-face -face interviews, things that have typically been biased and really not shown to be that effective in hiring or sourcing good talent, as well as on the talent management side, all the systems in place that we have for kind of measuring success or measuring talent that maybe those aren't holding up so well anymore. We already knew these things were, were kind of biased or prone to discrimination. But now as we think about, one, how do we make our lives easier in the sense that we try to automate some of these processes, we then need to begin thinking about, well, what about the artificial intelligence or the AI that backs that? You know, if we are giving biased inputs, we're going to be getting biased outputs. And so as we're thinking about these systems to help us acclimate to the current environment and to help make our lives a little bit easier, we actually need to be really, really careful right now about having things like ethical AI to ensure that not only are we bringing in people in a fair, unbiased way, but once they're in our door, once they're with our company, that it doesn't stop there. We need to continue to help them grow in that same vein as well. And there's a lot of tools that I think people have used in the past to kind of canvas their entire workforce. But I think now what we're kind of experiencing is a wholesale step back and saying, I'm going to take a look now at everything I have and everything I'm using and reevaluate it because I'm not sure if it fits into the mold that I'm experiencing right now. Yeah, and yeah, obviously priorities are shifting and they're gonna to continue to shift because we don't know the duration of this crisis and we don't know how hard it's gonna hit in some industries and, and some uh, geographies. So given what you're sharing, I'm really interested in pursuing this ethical AI okay. challenge that you brought up because if I am a listener, I can be curious, well, what does ethical AI look like, and we can get into the weeds of that data. A related question could be, how do I ascertain whether or not a partner like Pymetrics or somebody else actually applies ethical AI? What questions should I be asking? Because I'm not an expert, you know, sure, at, sure. you know, data management and, and probably maybe even ethics. I might have an opinion, but what does that actually look like? So you'll pick which one you want to gravitate to. You know, what does it, you know, look like from a, you know, process management perspective or, you know, what questions should, you know, organizational leaders be asking to ascertain whether or not that solution applies ethical AI? I think I'll start with, at least in my mind, what one of the easiest is or the questions to be asking. You know, I love to ask questions. Sometimes yeah. that can get me into trouble. But <laughs> no, that's, if, that's how I think you so good. If you think about being a leader and you're evaluating options and you're, and you're thinking, well, how do I know that 
these claims are true, things are unbiased or things are ethical, you need to understand the inputs that go into them. So is it a closed system? You know, what information is being shared and how, how readily available is that information? Is it white box, for example? Is it open source? What exactly is making that process unbiased or how are they debiasing? And a lot of times in this day and age, whenever we start getting into all the technology and algorithms and kind of the machine learning aspect, it can almost be like a black box for people. It's mm -hmm. confusing, it's difficult, you know, and it's new. So there's not a whole lot of, of experts in the field just yet. I mean, there are a ton of experts kind of growing up, but really we're, we're all figuring this out as we go and how we apply it. So I think transparency is number one. You know, people need to understand exactly what this thing is doing and how it's doing it. And then as you think about process and how you apply it, it really should be a dialogue. One, what's important to you? Two, what kind of guidelines, ideally government or federal guidelines like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Uniform Guidelines for Selection Procedures, are people following? What standards are they holding themselves to? And then how mm -hmm. does that system hold up against those standards? And then, of course, as you think about ongoing maintenance, how is it maintained in a fair and unbiased way. So again, once you launch the system, it doesn't stop there. Every system needs maintenance. It needs to continue mm -hmm. and it needs to continue in a supervised way. So what's being done proactively to help keep it fair, help keep it ethical? That was actually gonna be one of my questions and I'm gonna take it a level deeper because what I am hearing there is that there might be an unbiased, highly ethical solution one day, yet if there's not maintenance and discipline and rules applied, then it could develop bias over time. And did I hear that correctly? Absolutely. And I think, again, we start with the best intentions and it's it's very, very difficult to completely remove any and all bias. Right. And as you think about these systems, sometimes they're only touching one or two parts of, say, the recruitment cycle, for example. So whenever you put a system in place to help you select qualified candidates in a fair, unbiased way, you don't necessarily have control over where the candidates are coming from, where they're applying from, for example. So again, as you have inputs that may, may or may not be biased, you need to constantly be reevaluating and recalibrating the system to ensure that it's not biasing based on those inputs. And if there is, what remediation can you do to kind of go back to that state or reduce the bias? So what I'm hearing again is that this takes work. It requires to be attentive on top of it. You can't just plug it in, let it run, and just hope it works out, right? There has to be some ongoing calibration. Then it begs the question or invites the question, who does that? Is that on the supplier? Is that on, you know, say, the enterprise buyer? Is it a combination of the two? What do you see that works? Yeah, great question. One, if it were easy, canned response, but I think it's true, you know, a lot of us probably wouldn't have jobs. <laughs> right, yeah. And two, who does it? Honestly, it should be a partnership. Mm -hmm. It requires data from both sides. And that should be an ongoing conversation and dialogue. We shouldn't necessarily shy away from the concept of like optimizing our algorithms or optimizing our system to ensure the continual fairness and their continual use in the correct way. Mm -hmm. So really, it, it shouldn't just be the onus should not be on uh, the vendor. The onus should not be solely on the company. They need to be working in tandem and need to be sharing data freely, need to be having those open, honest, transparent conversations. Yeah. And yeah, I love it. If I 
Ernest Ning, the people analytics leader at Salesforce, popped in my head as we're talking here because they at Salesforce have a litmus test in so far as if there's going to be a process or tool or technology that is going to erode trust or compromise trust in the workforce has on the organization, particularly its leadership, then they're not going to do it. So it's a very clear you know, demarcation of, yeah, and it's obviously a subjective assessment at, at the end of the day, but it's informed by data. So the question to you is, do you advocate a similar litmus test, if I'm using that term you know, properly, or is there another construct or idea that you have that can serve as a, a wicket or you know, a gateway to determine, you know, is it a go, no go decision with a tool or process or data set? When evaluating these honestly complex solutions, I think first and foremost, again, what regulations are they being held to? What standards are they being held to? If they say we don't follow any standard, for example, then be a little bit cautious, I would say, or probe deeper, ask more questions. Again, knowing where they draw the line of the sand for what is considered fair, what's considered effective, so on and so forth, are very, very important questions to be asking and something Mm -hmm. that everyone should be considering whenever they look at these types of systems because you need to understand where the starting point is, where your baseline is, and what's acceptable versus what's not before you can evaluate efficiency, effectiveness, so on and so forth. And when you say standards, are you talking about third-party standards that would be adopted by technology providers and enterprises in, in unison? Or are you talking about self-generated standards that maybe an enterprise would take ownership of or potentially a combination of both? I think a combination of both. Again, I'm a huge advocate for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission standards for fairness, selection and minimum bias ratios, so on and so forth. But then also people want to be even more stringent than that. They want to do analyses that, you know, maybe a little bit more on the conservative side as opposed to those that could be conducted just to meet those minimum baselines or standards. So really, if a company says, hey, I want to go above and beyond what this organization recommends, then I think that's all the more power to them. And that should, again, be kind of a conversation whenever you're looking at calibrating the system, whenever you're looking at options, being transparent with those standards. What do you hold yourself to? What are you going to be holding that system to? And then having that conversation around how do we actually achieve these results? And that's for both talent acquisition and talent management as well. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as you're talking, I want to touch on something that we glossed over yet is critically important. I'm going to make an assertion and if you can respond to it, that would be you know, helpful, I think, for the listeners. When we talk about ethical AI, advanced analytics you know, around talent, people, the algorithms matter. The math matters. However, the data arguably matters more because if we don't, you know, garbage getting garbage out is cliche, but it's true. And so particularly you there at Pymetrics and you throughout your career and IO psychology specifically, you all are looking at new data to create through capturing behavior, you know, through passive data collection, through surveys, through a variety of means to shed light on a particular dynamic, whether it be individual, team, group, organizational. So do you advocate that we have a certain amount of creativity when we're looking at data moving forward and not just, you know, taking what's been generated over the years as, okay, that's what we got. Therefore, you know, we just got to make magic out of it. 
when it might not be appropriate. Again, that's I got into the, like the leading question, so I'm going to spank myself on <laughs> slap myself <laughs> on the wrist. But you know, you get where I'm going with this. I hope so. You know, what are your comments around the, the need to be creative with data and still calibrate against the ethical and proper use of data? Sure. So I think innovation is important in in anything, but I am a very firm believer in starting with the fundamentals and starting with the basics. So in my opinion, I think research as to one, what has been evaluated in the past, what metrics may have worked in the past, what may not have worked is kind of the foundation or the initial layer where you should start. You should start rolling out certain aspects of maybe performance or behavior or certain traits or characteristics that you know, have, for example, been known in the research or the literature to be biased in indicators of, say, performance or of selection or of some sort of talent management metric, but then also then iterating from there. So as you think about what's, what's unique for your company, what metrics do you maybe capture that another company does not, and then how do you leverage those? When you think back to human capital, Again, it's unique to your workforce, but then unique to your organization as well. Mm -hmm. So what skills, abilities, work activities, knowledge, so on and so forth, are you collecting? Are you measuring that may be unique to you? And then think about how to leverage them in a way that is going to position you, your company, for success in the future. I'm a huge advocate of the humanistic approach. So, you know, it's not just data. This mm -hmm. is your human capital. It is a resource to you, a resource that you need to take care of, that you need to leverage and ensure that everyone there is accounted for in, you know, you're not just a data point, you're not just a number, but understanding what processes, what procedures, what say talent development initiatives that you put into place, it's going to have an effect on people. And mm -hmm. If you're creative, if you're too creative, you can kind of trample over that people aspect. So really, in my opinion, and this is probably a long-winded answer to your question, it should be an iterative approach. No, I, it should I, be data-driven. Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic answer because you know, what I have seen is over the years is there's this implication or assumption rather made by leaders both inside of HR and outside is that, okay, I did this there. I understand you know, how processes and people work. Therefore, I'm gonna apply the same thing that was successful over here, over here, and that doesn't work. Similarly, there's research that was, you know, showed X and I'm just gonna adopt that hook, line, and sinker and try and fit it into this box, but that box doesn't look anything like the box that the research was founded on. So at the end, there's organizational expectations that are being set, you know, through values, let's say, that are on the wall of some, you know, corporate wall. And then the questions that are asked in a survey and the analytics are being done, and oftentimes they don't, they don't match. And so Correct me if I'm wrong, if there's good alignment between the values that leaders are exhibiting and putting forth and to the questions and data that are being generated to ascertain whether or not those values are being exhibited, that would be more of a desired future state. Is that you know, what you would advocate and is there a nuance that you want to pick out in there? Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. I think that congruence is absolutely essential. You can't be espousing some sort of mission, vision, and values and then not actually be capturing it or kind of on the sly be trying to capture something else. People are smart, they'll know. Right. And right. honestly, it won't turn out good in the long run. <laughs> but 
as you think about the talent ecosystem and kind of reimagining that ecosystem, think of the journey from start to finish, sourcing the hire all the way through. What are you presenting to that person? What are you kind of espousing that your organization or your company is? And how are you treating that individual? And then again, how are you matching that up with metrics? How are you matching that up with, say, performance initiatives, for example? And most importantly, how are you prioritizing that? If you say that, for example, leadership development is really, really important, one, what... How are you measuring leadership? What is leadership to your company? Two, are people clear on what leadership means to the company? Can they actually go somewhere, internet or what have you, and look to say, leadership to my company means X. I'm going to aspire to be a leader, so I know I need to develop A, B, and C, for Mm -hmm. example. So it's all really about transparency and clarification around the data, around what you hope to collect, what you hope to measure and analyze ultimately, and then doing it in a way, of course, that is both fair and ethical as possible. And so just going back to something you said earlier, it needs to be an iterative approach between the supplier, like Pymetrics in this case, and the enterprise where, okay, this is how the culture I want to create and how can you help bring that to life and not just overly relying on the supplier, but also you know, not being overly prescriptive either. There needs to be a dialogue there. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And I think one example of this, very, very basic, but honestly something that people may not necessarily think about whenever they first start entering into these relationships. Whenever you say, I want to do, for example, a fairness analysis, I want to make sure that my hiring practices are fair. You need demographic data to ensure that you can run the appropriate analyses to actually evaluate on whether or not your hiring process is fair. So that should be a very real conversation upfront between the two companies and saying, if we're going to do this analysis for you, this is the kind of data I need. Are you, can you provide it to me? Are you okay with me collecting it? Let's talk about how that should be collected. How should it be presented to candidates, so on and so forth. And so just a very basic example, but honestly a very critical one that people say, yeah, I want, I want to do a fairness analysis, but then not necessarily think about the downstream implications of all the data required to do one, for example. So if I'm listening, I imagine someone might be sitting back and saying, Justin, this all sounds great, you know, and however, there's a little something happening in the world right now, which might derail my ability to think systematically like we're talking about and and fill all the gaps. However, there are those who say, if we don't do this in this disrupted state, our ability to thrive in the wake of this crisis is going to be compromised. So what are your thoughts? So, you know, what are you saying in terms of those organizations that you believe are going to come through this and come through it in a healthy place? I spoke a little bit earlier about future proofing. You know, how do you begin thinking about six, eight months, even longer down the road? What's it going to look like to position yourself coming out of this crisis right now? Mm-hmm. And I think the companies that are truly doing that are looking for ways to, one, move into this new digital age. So what tools are they adopting? Are they looking at their existing practices? So, for example, the resume screen 
traditional face-to-face interviewing, are they evaluating that and saying, you know, exactly what were we trying to get? Why were we clinging so tightly to those those tools for the past decade, multiple decades, really? And then thinking about, well, how do we begin to innovate? And then what can we do to make our lives a little bit easier? How do we systematize things? How do we automate things? And then thinking about, okay, what processes do we put in place in both an initial sense? So what can we do right now? What can we then do, say, three months down the road and then continue to scale? And the scaling is really important. So you can start small. You can start in like a singular department, maybe with a single initiative. You can test something and then begin scaling it and rolling it out to more more parts of the business. And I think really the, the important piece there is, again, one, evaluating your current tools and two, saying, how can I now use either my current tools in the digital age, or can I find a solution that helps me better migrate into that digital age? If you don't mind sharing some examples, I know you specialize and have specialized in healthcare for you know a number of years, and obviously everyone listening is looking at the healthcare industry for sure. a host, a host of, of reasons. And I love the story that you shared about, you know, everyone clapping at, at seven o'clock. It's just, it, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. How can they get through this? I mean, what are you saying in that industry? Because I can't imagine there's nurses jumping over themselves to do surveys right now. (laughs) What are your thoughts and ideas there? Yeah, I think for hospitals, hospitals or hospital systems, I'll kind of start there. Two major things. One, how do they leverage their existing talents? Because we already know nurses are in short supply. The healthcare industry was in a workforce crisis before this even happened. This Mm -hmm. only exacerbated all of the issues they were already facing, you know, with high turnover in nurses, nurses looking to retire in about a decade or less. And they've already said, oh my goodness, we need to begin preparing for this, this talent surge, if you will, of, of just people leaving or exiting the workforce. So they need to think about how do they make the most of their existing talent, that human capital. One example, something that I heard all the time is floating nurses, for example floating a nurse from, say, an infection control unit to an emergency department or vice versa, or maybe even something from like a labor and delivery department to an infection control unit. Departments where they're not as stressed as, say, another department may be in this crisis. So that's number one. And to do that, they can use tools that really help them canvas their entire workforce and Mm. understand the DNA of what makes each nurse or each department unique and say, well, if knowledge being equal, you know, if educational background is equal amongst these nurses, which for all intents and purposes, it's pretty close. And if not, a lot of the things can be trained on the job. Then what combination of emotional, social, and cognitive traits is unique amongst each department that really makes someone thrive mm. in that department? So you may have a labor and delivery nurse being put into, say, the ICU or an infection control unit or something of that nature, and then burn out immediately. Mm-hmm. And you may say, well, what happened there? Why, why is one nurse so different from another? And you really need to understand, again, like that unique DNA that makes the nuances magnified between the departments, especially in a crisis. So if you can find tools to help you really understand that uniqueness, you can begin then plotting out, where could I float nurses? Maybe there, maybe there are departments that are similar enough to where you say, okay, I'm fairly confident 
that with other tools, for example, AI and machine learning using algorithms to help you identify a top performer in one department and matching success up against those top performers and against another, for example, you can then begin to understand how you can move or redirect your workforce in a meaningful way. And you're putting them in a position that they're likely to succeed in. You're not mm-hmm. just randomly moving people around based on you know, whatever fire is happening there, but you're being really thoughtful, really intentional about it, and you're using data to drive that. I think the data should be a conversation point as well. Like these people, again, humans, they need to understand why these decisions are being made. And I think that's, that's a huge thing that a lot, of, a lot of organizations can kind of gloss over, especially in a crisis. They just say, we're moving you here, we're doing this. But it's much more meaningful to those individuals when you say, hey, we looked at our entire workforce. We see that you, know, you have a lot of characteristics that could make you successful in this other department. We have a real need in this other department right now. Would you be willing to help us? And I think that would be much better received from just an individual perspective as opposed to saying, I'm moving you here because we need you. Yeah. Now, I, I love what you're saying, and I'm going to unbundle a couple of things. And in the interest of time, I'm going to be assertive insofar sure. as I'm going to put forth you know, this idea that I see emerging and just get your response to it. Because what I heard there is a lot of organizations over the last 10, 15 years, as LinkedIn has become more prominent, there's other tools to capture the technical skills of individuals, you know, whether or not you know they have a certain nursing capability, for example. That can be in a database, that can be searchable all fine and good. But then the research is you well, you're better aware of it than me, is, you know, why don't people work out, you know, and it's behavioral largely, but we don't capture the behavioral skills. So what I'm pulling out is that if organizations can do a better job at understanding the behaviors required in a certain role, and that they can assess whether or not certain individuals are willing and able to apply those behaviors, and it might even be a self-selection by an individual say, I'd I don't want to do that. I, it's not something that I feel I'm well suited to do. Then we're going to reduce risk for everybody. We're going to re- reduce risk for the organization as well as for the individual. So again, yeah, I'm overly assertive in putting forth that narrative, but is that you know, where you see us going in this field of analytics and talent management and talent acquisition? Exactly. And the best place to start is with the people who are already successful in those roles. So really understanding, again, what makes a top performer a top performer in a certain department or in a certain role or a certain job, what have you. And then understanding, well, now that you know what makes them unique, how can we then look to see how other people kind of fit that profile? And what can you do to begin moving people around? Or again, as you mentioned, even having them self-select, really understanding, hey, I could be a really good fit here. I could be successful. I'm going to give you that opportunity and help you grow. And taking off that last point, and I'm sure you're seeing this too, and if not, I'd be interested to know if there's something else that you're looking at. But like Microsoft transformed their culture around growth mindset, you know, the willingness and capacity to learn and in turn take action on that learning and doing it, you know, quickly. So in going back to the nursing example, if someone goes in no one, correct me if I'm wrong, is going to be a perfect fit. They're just going to, sure. they're going to, have to learn quickly and learn you know, appropriately. So is that something that you're seeing? And is that something that you would advocate as we get to this point where we're assessing and developing around growth mindset? Because I am shocked, frankly, that how few organizations are doing that despite this massive body of research around how valuable it is. 
I hear growth mindset a lot amongst clients and just even colleagues, really understanding, again, how people wish to be agile in the current environment. Agility, learning agility, digital literacy, for example, are some other concepts that I hear quite frequently about companies looking to, again, kind of future-proof themselves in this current environment. So how do you find people that are willing and able to learn? How do you find people who can do so quickly and then repurpose the talent that you do have and in the most meaningful way? In the yeah. easiest way, too, honestly, because ultimately it boils down to if it's really difficult for the organization to do, if it's really time consuming, they've already missed the window. It yeah. needs to be easy. It needs to be automated and it needs to help them achieve their goals. I got it, Justin. I love what you think and what you're promoting. It's inspirational and I think it's immensely appropriate given not only where we are, but where we're heading. As we start to wrap up here, you know, any closing thoughts and comments for the listeners? Yeah, I, I think the importance of diversity cannot be understated, mm -hmm. especially in the current environment. Research has been done time and time again in the past five, 10 years to show that diverse teams really produce better outcomes. They make more impactful decisions. They honestly have increased results. And so the importance of diversity, getting whether it be gender, ethnic diversity, neurodiversity into an organization is going to be critical for those organizations that want to future-proof themselves. They need to bring people together who have diversity of opinion, diversity of mind, and really begin questioning the status quo. So I think the tools that are going to be very useful, the tools that will kind of stand the test of time, are those that will help organizations do that in a meaningful way and in an easy way. I love how you think, love what you're sharing. And obviously, Pymetrics is involved in that. How do people learn more about Pymetrics? Absolutely. So they can go to pymetrics.ai, and they can look over all of our website, our resources, white papers. They can use the contact form. They'll be put into a direct contact with someone who will go back to them very quickly. All the research on our tools and solutions are there as well. So for those who are inquisitive and want to learn more, especially around ethical AI, we also have an open source ethical auditing tool for algorithms that is on GitHub for people who are interested called Audit AI. So many different tools they can use there. If you wouldn't mind, there is just one thing I would like to acknowledge as we wrap up. And Go. honestly, that's it comes from my healthcare background. And it's really understanding that Healthcare workers right now are on the front line. Mm -hmm. They are facing real risks. They should be thought of as heroes in this environment, honestly, first and foremost. And throughout this entire conversation, we've talked a lot about the human aspect of the work, of talent acquisition, of talent management, and really understanding that right now it's a stressful environment, not only for the organizations, but for these individuals as well. So as organizations start thinking about their talent acquisition, talent management strategies, they need to be cognizant that these people are fighting their own version of a war. And so things should be done to make that process easier for them as well. So for example, we've relied on face-to-face -face interviews for a very, very long time. But it's not may not always be the way forward, especially as we look to bring more nurses into this chaotic environment. So companies need to be thinking about solutions that are going to help them not only remove barriers to getting those qualified people, but making it easier for them to actually apply, to come on and really onboard 
into that environment in the quickest way possible. And so that's kind of the message I would just like to leave everyone well, with. And and, th and thank you for, for, for pausing me. And, you know, I'm sure everyone listening appreciates that, not only sentiment, but that perspective. Because I would add on quickly is that in the quest for efficiency and productivity, we've created inelastic organizations. So we don't have many places to go. It's easily snappable and breakable. And that's largely what's happening with healthcare, particularly ERs right now. So we need to be more mindful in how we can flex to your point earlier, be agile. So yeah, I certainly celebrate what you're saying. I celebrate what you all are doing there at Pymetrics and taking a leading role in ethical AI. So you know, again, kudos to you and, and for you, Justin, I appreciate you in the work that you do and, and your perspectives and ideas. So thank you for joining me today. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Al. I greatly appreciated it and always looking forward to speaking with you. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.